0: If you have a Bible, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 21. Genesis chapter 50. Uh, This is the fifth week of our doctrinal series, and we're talking about uh, the topic of providence this morning. So Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. You can put your finger in there. I'm going to read that in just a bit, but let me pray before we get started. Father, we come before you and we come to proclaim your name with our brothers and sisters here. We want to praise you in the assembly. We want to lift your name high. We want to enthrone you on our praises. And so we pray as we hear from your word that you would encourage us, that you would comfort us. Oh God, that you would be near to us as we hear you speak. We recognize these are not just the words of man. What we find in the scriptures, but these are the words of God. Our creator speaks to us in these words. And so we value them more than anything. More than gold, more than money, more than reputation. More than anything else, we value your speech to us. And so we pray that we would treat your speech to us appropriately. That we would submit to what you have to say. That we would rejoice in the goodness of our God as you reveal yourself to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on August 17th, 2012, I received a phone call that I will never forget. Hannah and I were in Kentucky at the time, living there, and we were waiting for my mom to come pick up Lydia from our house. She was going to take her for the weekend because our plans were to go to my best friend's wedding in Chicago that weekend. He was getting married It was an exciting time. It was going to be a smaller wedding, but he was kind of doing a a wedding. He lived in Louisville, but he was doing it in Chicago, and we were excited to go. We were supposed to leave at 9 a.m., but we weren't in a huge hurry. Typically, typically, my mom is pretty timely, not always. But at 9.30, we called to see where she was. She hadn't showed up yet, and there was no answer. We called my dad and just asked, hey, do you know where mom is? She was supposed to come around 9, again, no rush. We're just driving to Chicago. Um, But do you know where she is? Is she on her way yet? And when we called my dad, he said she had left on her bicycle a while ago to go to the bank, and then she was supposed to come back and then come and get Lydia. And I I realized as I was talking to him, it clicked for him, like, wait, 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 where where is she? She was supposed to be back at this point. In some ways, it wasn't that surprising that she wasn't back yet. She often stops and talks to neighbors and visits with people. But the amount of time that had passed was unusual. So I could tell he was worried, and I got a little worried. What's happening? She wasn't answering her phone. So my dad jumped in the car. He went out to figure out what was going on. Like, where is she? What's going on? And as he was turning out of our cul-de-sac or as he was coming To the edge of our cul-de-sac, he saw a police officer turning down the street, and he immediately noticed that the bike was in in the police officer's car. So my dad rolled down the window, and he asked, what's going on? And the officer simply said, your wife has been in a bicycle accident. I don't know how bad it is, but you need to go to the hospital immediately. So my dad called us and let us know what had happened it was this call that i'll never forget. We don't know what we didn't know what had happened. We didn't know what was going on. She was supposed to be there and she wasn't there. She was in the hospital. So when we arrived at the hospital, we learned that she had been found on the side of the road unconscious by a neighbor, by someone just to the house that she was passing by. She had swelling and bleeding in her brain and they didn't know if she was going to make it. To give her a chance, they were going to have to relieve the pressure in her head and do surgery. We sat there stunned. This was supposed to be a weekend of celebration where I celebrated with my friend his marriage. Now we didn't know, was my mom going to live? I remember getting on the phone with my best friend be being like, I-, I can't come anymore. I'm not going to make it. I don't know if my mom's going to make it. The shock was so real; the emotions didn't have time to catch up till later. You just didn't like—you don't know what to do. But that night, I sat there and I just cried, not knowing what would come next, not knowing if my daughters would remember my mom. We had Lydia and Kesset at that time, not knowing what the future held. It was at that point that I was confronted with the very real questions: God, are you there? Are you in control? Did you, allow, did you allow this to happen? Where are you? We all have had times in our lives where this question becomes not a theoretical one, not one that you debate in a classroom or in a coffee shop, but a real one. One that hits home for you. And maybe, maybe you're going through that time right now. Maybe you feel like, you're like God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't understand your plan right now. It doesn't make any sense to me. And to be honest, I'm pretty upset about it. I'm pretty mad about it. And I don't really know what to do in this situation. When we ask these questions, we're asking questions about God's providence. Does he control all things? Does he guide all things? Does he rule them? As a church, we believe. We believe that the scriptures teach that God does guide. He rules and he governs and he upholds all things. This is what providence means. The Belgic Confession, which should be behind me, puts it this way. This is how they define providence. What are we talking about when we say God's providence? We believe that the same God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or to chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Kids, providence means that God orders and directs all things. He not only placed the mountains where they are, but he placed your desk at school and the kids that sit around you. He not only directs the wind where it will go, but directs your every footstep. He not only guides the planets, but directs what you will do this afternoon, what you will eat this afternoon. That's what God's providence is, that God orders and directs all things. Today, we're going to explore this reality together. A few weeks back, Matt spoke of God's decree. And even as he was preaching, I asked myself the question, well, what's the difference between what I'm about to preach on And what he preached on. And the difference is, God's decree is his plan. God's providence is the working of that plan. God's decree is his plan. And God's providence is the working of that plan. And I want to show you this morning that God's providence is really good news and for your comfort, even when it's really hard. Even when it's really hard. And to do that, we're going to look at the life of Joseph In Genesis our text will be Genesis 50 verses 15 through 21 and again before I read it I know I haven't read the text yet but I want to tell you the story of Joseph because this comes at the end of the story of Joseph it only makes sense after we hear the story of Joseph and the story of Joseph starts in Genesis 37 I can't read the whole thing so I'm going to tell you the story of Joseph the Joseph story does begin in Genesis 37 Joseph is the son of Jacob Jacob is the son of Isaac, and Isaac is the son of Abraham. Joseph is actually the 11th son of Jacob, one of the 12 who become the 12 tribes of Israel. When Joseph, While Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, he's the first son of Rachel. Jacob had multiple wives, and he's the first son of Rachel. This actually is really important for the story, and it's really the whole basis for the Joseph story, because Rachel is the wife that Jacob especially loved Rachel is the wife that Jacob especially loved because of Joseph's relation to Rachel Jacob his father loved Joseph more than any of the brothers so Joseph had 11 brothers and it was very evident to them that Joseph was the favorite and they knew it because of his love for him Genesis tells us that Jacob made Joseph a robe of many colors All the brothers could see it, and they're like, yep, he's the favorite. Our dad loves him more than the rest of us. And they become jealous, rightly so of Joseph. They become jealous. When Joseph is 17, he then has dreams where his older brothers will bow down and worship him. Genesis doesn't say this, but as Joseph tells them that story, I think to myself, that's a bad idea. You don't tell your brothers that story. But he tells them that story. And the brothers, they're enraged. They're jealous. They're like, what do we do with this guy? He's got the robe. He's telling us these dreams where we're all going to bow down to him. And they're upset. So they decide, we're going to take this into our own hands. We're going to deal with this once and for all. One day when Joseph is coming to meet them in the fields, Jacob Joseph's father sends him and says, go meet your brothers, go bring them word. They're they're out shepherding the flocks, and and, and go bring them something and, and bring word back to me. So Joseph goes out, but as Joseph's coming to meet them in the fields, they put Joseph into a pit. They decide, you know, we're gonna kill him. We're gonna get rid of him. But as it happens, they decide at the end of the day not to kill him, but to sell their brother into slavery. So that's what they do, they put him into a pit, and then they sell him into slavery. They lie to their father, and they say that Joseph has died from a wild animal attack. They dip his coat that his father made him, his robe, in blood and say, this is all we found of him. They lie to their father. So Joseph is sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. Well, it only gets worse for Joseph. Joseph is made a slave in Potiphar's house, an officer of Pharaoh. Things seem to be getting better for him, but then Potiphar's wife asks Joseph to sleep with her. Joseph refuses. He's a man of character. He's like, I will not do this. And out of jealousy, again out of jealousy, she accuses him of sexual misconduct. And Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. So let's just recap what has happened so far. For For the first 17 years of Joseph's life, he's the favorite son. He gets all the attention. He gets all the gifts. He gets all the love. Everything is going really well for Joseph, even the dreams he has. These are good dreams. Like, this is my future looks good. But suddenly, Joseph finds himself in a pit. He goes from being special to being a slave, he goes from being a son to being a servant, and he goes from living at home, being his father's favorite son, to being in prison. And you have to imagine that as Joseph sits in the pit, as he sits in prison, he probably wonders, God, like, what are you doing? What did I do wrong? What's going on here? What has happened to me? I was the favorite son, and now I'm in prison for something I didn't do. I was falsely accused, and I'm in prison in a foreign land without any of my family. What are you doing in this situation? Why is this happening? But in prison, Joseph interprets the dreams of a few of his inmates. And by God's providence, by God's direction, he is put before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh has dreams. The king of Egypt has dreams. And he hears about Joseph. He says, bring this man before me because I hear that God reveals things to him. Joseph tells Pharaoh that the king's dreams mean that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he puts him in charge of his entire kingdom. It's a rag to, rags-to-riches story. Joseph's life started so great, and then it went downhill. And now he's second in command in Egypt. So Joseph is exalted in Egypt and stores food for the years of plenty to plan for the years of famine. It is in the midst of the years of famine that then Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy food from Egypt. And they don't know Joseph's in charge of this. They think Joseph is just long gone somewhere else. They come to Egypt because there's a famine in the land and they haven't stored food. They didn't know that there's going to be this famine. But Joseph had it revealed to him by God that this is what Pharaoh's dreams meant. And so they come to Egypt, and they stand before Joseph and ask for food, and they don't recognize him. It's been 22 years, and they don't recognize him. Joseph ends up revealing himself to his brothers. He ends up forgiving them and welcoming them. But when Joseph's father dies, Jacob, they're rightly afraid. Does Joseph want to take revenge? Will he kill them? Will he let them starve? But Joseph welcomes them. He welcomes his whole family to Egypt to provide for them. And this is where our story picks up in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Let's read this together. It's on the screen behind me as well. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Do not fear. And these are the verses that I really want to focus on. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It is from this story that we learn much about God's providence, God's ordering of all things, God's design of all things, maybe especially in the hard times because the Joseph story is filled with hard situations. I want to point out just three things that we see in terms of providence from this text. First, we learn that God intricately orders the details of our lives and their proceedings. God cares about every little detail and he even plans them. It wasn't by chance that Joseph was the first son of Rachel. It wasn't by chance that Joseph had dreams. It wasn't by chance that they sold him into slavery. It wasn't by chance that Joseph ended up in Potiphar's house. It wasn't by chance that he met the the baker and the cupbearer in prison. It wasn't by chance that he stood in front of Pharaoh. It wasn't by chance that he was put in charge of all of Egypt. It wasn't by chance that the brothers of Israel came to him. God was in control of all of it. Our text, Genesis 50, 20, says God planned all of this for good. He planned all of it for good. We believe that God, after he created all things, he didn't forsake them to let it run on its own. No, he governs and directs all things. We don't believe in Christians and in luck. We believe God orders all things. God didn't wind up this world to let it run. He didn't create it and then step back to watch. No, he is not an observer of events. He rules and governs all events. Nothing happens outside of his appointment. Near to the heart of God's godness is his providence. Near to the heart of God's godness is his providence. We read in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, that the prophet says about God, God's actually speaking here, and he says, I am God, and there is none other. There is none that is like me. I declare, now notice how he defines how he is God. I declare the end from the beginning, and from long ago, I declare what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place, and I will do my will. God is God, and he rules and governs all things. That's part of what it means for him to be God. The scriptures say this about God, that he works all things, not some things. The text says he works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. It says he does whatever his hand has predestined to take place, Acts 4.28. It says that his sovereignty rules over all, Psalm 103.19. That he establishes man's steps, Proverbs 16.9. That every decision, every, not some, every decision, every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33. That he gives beasts and birds their food. He feeds all the animals on the earth, that's his plan, his providence. Psalm 147, 9. That the eyes of the Lord are on every place, keeping watch on all things. Proverbs 15:3. The scriptures say, not a hair of your head. You've heard this. Notice what it's saying. Not a hair of your head, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of the Father. The point is, even the smallest event, a hair falling from your head, a sparrow dying is under God's providential care. Kids, God planned your school schedule before the year began. He planned your locker and your locker number before you knew where your locker was and what your number was going to be. He planned who you would sit by at lunch and in class. Who is on your sports team? He knew that beforehand. He didn't only know it, but he planned it. He planned and he knew who you ride the bus with and who you would sit by on the bus. He planned for you to have the teacher that you have. Everything is guided by God's loving hand. And some of you might wonder, hey, I'm not sure about this. This makes me uncomfortable. I know, I know there's a debate among Christians about this. What, what does that mean for our free will? What does that mean? Like, are we simply then robots? He's just kind of like directing to do everything and none of our choices matter? Because that's, that's kind of what it sounds like sometimes. And what does that mean for all the evil that happened? And all the suffering. What about that person I have to sit by? I didn't want to sit by them. How can a loving and good and powerful God coexist with all the pain and the suffering in this world that I've experienced that is so pervasive? It seems that God can either be all-powerful or all-good, but not both. It just doesn't make sense. How could How could he direct all things and then all this terrible stuff happen? It doesn't make any sense to us. So this leads me to my second point. Second, we learn from this story that God is not the author of evil and that our choices still matter. God is not the author of evil and our choices still matter. In the Joseph story, a lot of evil things happen. It all begins with Jacob loving Rachel more than Leah. That's that's Jacob's sin. He shouldn't have loved Rachel more than his other wives. He shouldn't have married many wives. He made a lot of mistakes along the way, right? And he's going to pay the price for that. And part of the price for that is the strife in his own family. There are consequences for his actions. He loved Joseph more than the other brothers. Again, that's Jacob's sin. Then the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. That's their sin. They shouldn't have done that. Then Potiphar's wife made a false accusation. She lied. That's on her. Notice in our text that it says in verse 15, maybe Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that God did to him. No, no, no. That's not what it says. It says all the evil that we did to him. We did evil to him. In verse 17, Jacob's letter says, please forgive the transgression of your brothers. Whose transgression is it? Theirs. They sinned. And their sin because they did evil to you. Then in verse 20, Joseph says, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. The scriptures are clear that God orders this whole situation. This whole situation would never have taken place if God wasn't providentially working in the whole thing. It just doesn't make any sense as a story otherwise. But it also makes very clear God is not the author of evil. And they are responsible for their actions. This is because God created us with the ability to choose. We have free will. To us, it seems that either God is in control or we have free will. Can't be both. Either we are responsible for our choices or everything is predetermined. Either the future is open or it is not. The two can't seem to exist together. It just logically doesn't make sense to us. But the, in the Bible, it's never either or. It's always both and. You are free and you're responsible for your choices and they matter and no one is forcing you to make those choices. And and everything is working out according to the plan of God. He governs it all. And you say, "Well, how can that be?" You just state that, but how can that be? And there is a mystery here. There's a mystery here. We can't quite understand how this can be the case, but we see in the scriptures that both are affirmed, and we want to affirm what the scriptures affirm. It's all over this text. I'm trying to just say what's here. This is what we see again and again throughout the scriptures, that both are affirmed. Jay Packer says the relationship between our free will and God's providence is an antinomy. An antinomy is not a contradiction, but an apparent contradiction. An antinomy is not a contradiction, but an apparent contradiction. It looks like a contradiction to us. And the example he uses is of light. We know that light sometimes behaves as waves and sometimes as particles. Sometimes it acts as if it's composed of matter, and other times it acts like it's not composed of matter. And scientists and quantum physicists physicists have looked at this and been like, I don't know what to do with this. Light's confusing. We don't know how that can be. It shouldn't be, but it is. It's both a wave and a particle, and we don't know why. Packer says, this is the same with God's providence. This is the same with God's providence. It is only an apparent contradiction with our free will, not a real one. It's not a real contradiction. Our choices are somehow part of his plan. And here's one of my favorite examples of this in all the scriptures. In Acts 27, Paul is in a terrible storm. I don't know if you remember when we preached through Acts, but all of Acts 27 is about this shipwreck. Paul's on a boat. He's a prisoner with all these guards, and there's this terrible storm that occurs, and everyone thinks they're going to lose their lives. Everyone's terrified, but God speaks to Paul, and he says, no one will die. Before before it happens, before the ship breaks apart, he says, the ship is going to be destroyed, but not a single life will be lost. Not a single one. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. You can be sure that everyone will live on this boat. That's God's plan. That's his providence. But some of the sailors say, hey, let's get off this boat. We'll leave the prisoners here. Who cares about them? They'll die. We have lifeboats. Let's get to safety. And Paul, they start to get in the lifeboat, but Paul tells the guards that if they get in the boat, they're going to die, the lifeboat. If you get in the boat, you're not going to live. Wait, and you say, wait a minute. God told Paul not a life would be lost. Why does Paul care what they do? (laughs) Who cares what they do? Go and have a beer and we're just going to be safe because God said it's going to happen. Doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. No, Paul says, if you get off this boat, you're going to die. Paul knows that their choices matter and that God has a plan, that both are true. God has a plan and their choices matter. Paul is neither passive nor paralyzed. Paul's belief in God's providence compels him to tell them to stay on the boat. His choices, their choices mattered more, not less, because God had a plan. Do you hear that? They mattered more, not less. And that just is so hard for us to grasp, but we see it all over the Bible. So the scriptures can affirm two things at once. God orders all things, even the details. But it is also true that God is not the author of evil, and our choices still matter have free will third we learn that God's providential care is for our good it's for our good the scriptures are clear that God's providence is really good news in Genesis 50:20, Joseph says something quite shocking to the modern ear he affirms that all the bad stuff that happened to him was ultimately for good he says this as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good." To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even though Jacob married both Leah and Rachel. It was from both of these women that the 12 tribes came. God turned it to good. Even though Jacob loved Joseph more than the brothers. Even though Joseph was unjustly sold into slavery. Even though Joseph unjustly went to prison. God turned it to good. God saved his people, Israel, from starvation because Joseph was sent to Egypt ahead to store up food so that they might not starve to death. Because if God would not have sent them ahead, they wouldn't have lived. Romans 8:28, we read it today, says this. We know that for those who love God, all things, again, just notice the language, all things, not some things. All things work together for good. Psalm 1 to 45, 17 affirms, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. That's if I, like a verse for you to remember. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. And here's the deal. God's providence is ultimately good news because God's providence means he's able to save. It means he's able to save. <laughs> If you don't believe in God's providence, you have to answer some questions about how he's able to save us. That is why the prophet Isaiah says, is God's arm so short that it cannot ransom? Does he have no power to deliver? Behold, God dries up the sea with his rebuke. He makes the rivers into a wilderness. Isaiah says, because God's arm is strong, because he has power, he can ransom. He can redeem, he can save, he can dry up the sea. The ultimate moment where God turned evil actions to good was on the cross. Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.23 says this, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's providence. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God but was killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men. Just notice what Peter has done. It was God's plan, and they did evil. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. At the exact same time that humans were taking part in the most wicked act of all time, to kill the sinless one, to shed his blood, the one who has never done anything wrong, Peter says, (laughs) That was God's decree and definite plan for Jesus to suffer, not for what he did, but for what we did. The darkest moment in history was also the one with the brightest light. God is in the business of turning the worst moments into good. That's what he does, that's what our God does. He redeems the worst moments and turns them to good. We call Jesus, the day that Jesus died, Good Friday. Good Friday because of God's providence. It's good that Jesus was sent to die for our sins. And something horrific happened on that day. Our hope rests in God's good ordering of things. His arm is not too short to save. And even today, if you call out to him, he will save you because he is powerful enough. He can. That's who we worship. That is our God. He can wipe away all your sins. He can rescue you from yourself. He can give you everlasting life. Ultimately, the providence of God is meant to be a doctrine that comforts us. Yeah, I realize you might have questions about it. I've tried to address some of those. But ultimately, the scriptures say that God's providence is something that comforts us. It consoles us. Maybe you just got bad news about your health. Maybe you had something absolutely terrible happen to you when you were younger. Maybe you did something terrible in your past. Maybe kids at school are just mean to you and you wonder why. Maybe you feel like you're stuck. Maybe you can't get that job that you really want. Maybe your marriage is a wreck right now. Maybe you're in a situation where you just don't know what the next step is. Well, you know what? God is in the business of turning terrible things to good. He turns our shame into glory, our darkness into light, slavery into freedom, pain into hope. That's what he does. That's why we worship him. That's why we sing to him. That's why we hear from him. Because he's good. He's good. He's so good to us. All the time. All the time. <laughs> I remember the morning after my mom's accident I sat there thinking about our future. I had no idea what would happen. I had no idea if my kids would ever know or I didn't I didn't know what the future held. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know what this afternoon is going to bring. You don't know what you're going to talk about in the lobby afterwards. You know what comforted me the most in that moment? What comforted me the most is that God knew and God was good. God knew and God was good. That was my sure foundation when everything else was sinking around me, when I didn't know what was going on. He was my rock in the midst of the storm. God is your rock in the midst of the storm. Providence is really, really good news. And you know what? This didn't mean I knew why this was happening. Usually we don't know why. It's nice to get this Joseph story because we're like, ah, it worked out great. But guess what? Most of our stories aren't finished. Actually, all of our stories, if you're here, aren't finished. I'm not talking to any dead people. We don't know why you're going to have to live most of your life often in these situations where you don't know why it's happening. It also didn't mean that the pain wasn't real. God's providence doesn't make us, "Mm, well, God's in control, I'm okay. No, the pain is real. You think Joseph was sitting in the pit like, yeah, this is great, I love this. Prison, this is my favorite place I've lived yet. No, the pain is real and he didn't know what was happening it didn't mean that we it doesn't mean that we accept okay just whatever god says that's going to happen i that morning that night we didn't accept in one way hear me rightly that god was just going to end her life you know what we did we prayed we prayed like mad and we had so many people around the country praying for her and the people that were praying for, most of them, really believed in God's providence that he had the power to save her. And we prayed, knowing that if we had faith, mountains could be thrown into the sea. Joshua lifted his arms and the sun stood still. We cried out to God to act, and he acted. We truly believe that our prayers changed the course of history. And God is in control of it all. And God has a plan. And God healed her. She sits in this room today. God's providence is good news. It means that he continually upholds, guides, and cares for his creation. God's providence means that he can save. He can save us from the pit. He will exalt us like he exalted Joseph. Think about Joseph's story. He went from the lowest point to this highest ranking official in Egypt. In the same way, God will exalt you if you are in Him. He will exalt you if you are in Christ. And you might be thinking in the situation that you're in right now, I don't see how he's going to do that. But he will. He promises to do so. If you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you pledge your life to him, if you repent of your sins, your future is only light and no darkness. And that's really good news because God says, It will happen, and when he says it will happen, it happens. And guess what? That's not because of you. That's because of him. He's going to do that work in your life. He's going to cause you to turn to him. He's going to make you repent of your sins. That's his work in your life. He is good. His works are always good. It's here that we find hope. It's here that we find comfort. It's here that we find rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who knows all things, who directs all things, who governs all things. And Father, we recognize we don't always understand why things happen. And often we struggle and we have questions. Well, we trust you and we want to trust you. So would you increase our faith? As the man who met Jesus said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to believe that you are good and that you control all things. And that is ultimately for our benefit, for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now to our time of communion. We get to come to this table to dine with our God who knows all things and governs all things. God who sets a feast for us while we're in the midst of a famine. In many ways, this is a meal for us. We go throughout the week and we need the sustenance of Christ. And this is where we come to the meal and we we actually receive of Christ, of his body and of his blood. And we remember his death on the cross for our sins. The good end that is ultimately set for us is that we get to commune with him and this this table is a picture of that one day we will commune with him forever we will have a meal with him forever this is a foretaste of that that we get to be with him that we get to have union with him and as we take of this bread and wine we are taking of Jesus Christ who is sent on our behalf to die for our sins and this is why this meal The bread and the wine is for Christians who have been baptized, who have covenanted themselves with a body of believers. It's for those who acknowledge that only through Christ can true union come between God and man and between one another. So if you have not done that, if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins, we ask you to stay in your seat. But we also say, call out to God because he has power to save. He will forgive you right now and he will welcome you into his presence. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he was with his disciples, and he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he also took the wine and said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do this in remembrance of our savior. At Emmaus, we come down the aisle to your right, starting with the first row, and we move to the back of the theater. Come and eat with our God who orders all things to a good end. Come and eat.